This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference. And this is Beyond the Page. My guest on today's episode is Rebecca Donner, author of All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, winner of the 2021 National Book Critics Circle Award, and one of the most compelling works of narrative nonfiction you are likely to read for quite some time. Donner's extraordinary book tells the story of her great-great-aunt, Mildred Harnack, an American scholar who, along with her German husband, Arvid, for a decade led one of the most effective and tenacious anti-Nazi resistance groups in Hitler's Germany. Mildred was executed by guillotine in 1943 by order of Hitler himself. Donner is also the author of a novel, Sunset Terrace, and of a graphic novel, Burnout. Rebecca, welcome to Beyond the Page. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Really glad you're back. I know you're just back from Scotland where you were delivering a lecture and you've been all over the place um, I certainly talking have. about this yes. wonderful book. Yes. So All the Frequent Troubles is neither a typical biography nor a typical family history. For all its impressive research and literary craft, and we'll get into that later, there's a feeling throughout the book that you're deeply emotionally invested in Mildred's story at a very personal level. It reads like a book you had to write. I'm so glad that that came through, uh, John, because that is indeed correct. I felt compelled to write this. I I feel tremendously invested in this story. I feel passionate about this story. Um, And I've been wanting to write this story uh, for a very long time, my when I was 16, my grandmother gave me Mildred's letters and urged me to tell her story one day. My grandmother knew that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and and so as she thought that this uh, Mildred story was worthy of a great big book, and I had uh, great big ambitions for this book. Um, and so I knew that I wasn't uh, certainly prepared to write it when I was 16. I, and I had other books in me that I wanted to write first. Uh, but Basically, after my second work of fiction, I decided that I was ready to to dive in. So had you been hearing about Mildred prior to that? I mean, was there talk about her and the family at all? It's an interesting question. She comes up, of course, uh, in my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my great-grandmother, when I was quite young, did not want to talk about Mildred. And she was, in fact, quite angry uh, about um, Mildred's activism in the resistance, about mm-hmm. what happened to the family. She was very paranoid uh, during the Cold War era that that she would and her husband would suffer um, and be uh, sort of uh, labeled as communists, and I mean we can get into this later. But but that mm-hmm. this is part of the legacy of Mildred Harnock and and the Red Orchestra, um, it, and this was one of the reasons that people did not hear about this story for many years. In fact, U.S. intelligence buried Mildred's story for over fifty years um, because of Cold War politics. So it really was a kind of secret history that when you encountered her again at sixteen 
and you're handed letters by your great-grandmother, I believe. And then you begin to read into a life that you'd only barely heard about. Well, many people ask me how long have you, how long did it take you to write this book? And one way of answering that question is uh, nearly all my life. Um, it was actually my grandmother who gave me the letters. But before mm. that, when I was nine, my great grandmother uh, was taking my height in her kitchen, and Mildred had spent her senior year of high school living in that um, in that house, and so there was a mark on the wall uh, that measured her height, along with other young you know members of, of the family their heights had been measured. And my great grandmother said, can you stand up against the wall? I'll measure your height. And I, and after she measured it, you know, put a ruler on my head and marked the, the pen on the wall. I, that's when I saw Mildred's, um, the mark designating Mildred's. Yeah. And it was this very faint line and the faint M next to it. And that is when I first heard Mildred's name. I said, who's that? And she said, that's your great, great aunt Mildred. But she said it in a way that was brittle and and I heard the rage in her voice you know and it's a, it's complicated um I, I I don't want to paint her all with you know with one brush stroke but she also was tremendously aggrieved uh, by the idea that mm-hmm. her that her youngest sister was beheaded on Hitler's order uh and it's quite you know with a guillotine and and it's quite medieval uh and and mm-hmm. so mixed in with with her feelings of paranoia about the U.S. government uh, tracking her down and her husband down and um, uh, punishing her as uh, both of them as communists because they were related to Mildred, who had been affiliated with a group uh, that had performed espionage, uh, and and the group uh, was out of Moscow Center, um, uh, and and she didn't know that Mildred also performed espionage for the Americans, and that's one of the things mm-hmm. that I that I go into in great detail in my book. So she was really participating in espionage for the allies. Uh, but these distinctions were lost for many years. Um, but, you know, I, so I'm nine years old. I get this sense of, of, of sort of a complexity of, of emotions. I sense Mildred as a kind of spectral presence. Um, and, and, and I also sense that nobody wants to talk about it. And I'm, you know, I'm nine. So also people don't really want to go into, uh, I think, the details. Uh, um, of course. <laughs> uh, but then when I was 16, as I said, my grandmother, um, Jane, gave me these letters. And, and then she also told me about a little boy whose name was Don, who between the ages of 11 and 13 was Mildred's courier in Berlin. His his father was uh, a diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin. So I kind of tucked that away too. And then I just lived with this story for many years. I, I did try to write a short story uh, about Mildred in college. Um, and and it was my first attempt. I thought, you know, I, I wonder how I would approach this material. And, and then I was quite aware that I needed to also, at that point, put it away and, and uh, pursue other writing projects. I, I had the sense that I did not want to write this story in any kind of conventional way. There's this term mm-hmm. in, in in biography, a cradle to grave biography. I did not yeah. want to write a cradle to grave biography, and so um, I I did after my second uh, uh, work of fiction make a trip to Berlin to the Gedenkstätte Deutsche Widerstand, the the German mm-hmm. Resistance Memorial Center. 
and met with the archivist there. And I knew that my grandmother had given him documents. And so I said, you know, may I see those documents and other documents? And I would say that was really the moment that I began to seriously engage with the material. But even then, mm-hmm. um, as I as I started to collect material, I knew that I wasn't quite ready. I still, I, I also was aware that I wanted to uh, research other archives in, in Germany as well as the National Archives in, in London and, of course, in the United States and the Library of Congress. And and I also wanted to try to access intelligence files in Moscow. And most of them, almost mm-hmm. all of them are under lock and key. But for a moment in the early 90s, uh, some historians were permitted a, a peek at them. And then um, and so I, it, it's a very complex story. And I wanted mm-hmm. to conduct very rigorous research. So I aware of this, I, and I also read voraciously and I'm, and I'm reading histories and biographies, but also novels and poetry from this time. And then in the run up to the presidential election in, in 2016, I suddenly had this, I felt this tremendous urgency to set aside the novel that I had been working on. This was my third work of fiction. I had been working on it for six years and I thought, no, I need to put this aside now and write Mildred's story. And that's when I Mm -hmm. really began it in earnest. Well, I think it makes a lot of sense about the 2016 epiphany, if you will, because this book could have been in other hands, a much sort of narrower focused biography, but in fact, it, it really opens out into a meditation, uh, I think, about the meaning of political action and what people are willing to do. And that's one of the reasons why I think it has such impact and so much resonance. And, you know, what you describe, it sounds to me like there were two different aspects of your taking all this time from the age of 16 onwards to try and process the notion of how to do a book like this. One is, the question of form, which is really a novelistic question. And I I know that experience myself of having spent years with a particular story because you know you're not ready. You you don't really see how it's going to be yet. Right. And you want to wait. And then the other side is the research you did, which really is extraordinary. And I think it's that that combination um, that makes this book so unusual, you know, as a work of narrative nonfiction that really uh, also reads um, really almost like a political thriller in places. It's also a love right. story between Mildred yes. and her husband, Arvid. Mm-hmm. So we have this question of resistance, and it's a very complex one because, first of all, it's been virtually erased from the history until until now. And Mildred herself, as you note, right in the beginning of the book, um, was intent upon a kind of complete erasure of self in the life she lived and the records she left behind. And so she is, you know, Arvid is a remarkable character and his family, the Bonhoeffers and other cousins, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, the the pastor who was executed for -hmm. an attempt on Hitler's life in 1945. I mean, it's a remarkable cast of characters um, all around, and some yes. other Americans as well. But Mildred is clearly the the central and spiritual focus. So if we start digging into her, yes. and as you came to understand her, first of all, what were the, the sources particularly that you found about her that told you, that felt like the biggest and first gateway into her? And how did, you, how did your understanding of her begin to change as you began mm-hmm. this deep dive that would lead to the book? 
Well, these letters that my grandmother gave me were, and, and these were predominantly letters that Mildred wrote to her mother. Those letters were really the first kind of portal into Mildred's heart and mind um, for me. Uh, and, and, you know, Mildred went over to Berlin uh, in 1929. She boarded a, a steamer sh ship and crossed the Atlantic um, and enrolled in a PhD program. And, and she was an American graduate student who bore witness to the deterioration of Germany's parliamentary democracy and rapid uh, ascent in the popularity of the Hitler of Hitler, and you know who was the the head of the mm -hmm. of the Nazi Party. Um, it's quite breathtaking to consider uh, how quickly this happened. Um, in mm -hmm. in 1928, the year before Mildred arrived, the Nazi Party got less than three percent of the vote in our Reichstag election in Germany's parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in 1930, the Nazi Party got 18 percent. And then in 1932, the Nazi Party got 37 percent. And for the first time, it was the largest party in the Reichstag. Uh, and 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 still, uh, Hitler was uh, a, a a popular uh, politician, but Germany at that time was still a parliamentary democracy with a constitution that had freedom of speech, that protected freedom of speech, freedom of the press, um, uh, freedom to demonstrate uh, and and to voice your political opinions. Uh, and after Hitler was appointed uh, chancellor, this was all very swiftly taken away. And and here was Mildred as an American graduate student bearing witness to it all. And and so. Uh, um, I, I think that uh, the, those letters really have enabled me to understand how she viewed the rise of fascism. And one of her early letters, in, I believe it was 1930, uh, she wrote to her mother, many Germans hide their heads in the sand. And she acknowledged that, that Germany was facing, uh, there was tremendous strife, strife and, and suffering. Um, that there was, of course, the economic uh, devastation. Uh, there were lines of, of unemployed uh, people and, and beggars that she would pass on her way to the University of Berlin. Um, but then she would also, on the U-Bahn and the S-Bahn, see people reading newspapers from the extreme left to the extreme right, uh, communist, social democrats, all the way to the, 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 the Nazi party, the conservative party, um, and, and the centrist, the Catholic parties. Um, 90 daily newspapers were published in Berlin uh, alone at, at this time. So she was awed by this. There was a sense of agitation in the air, but, but a lot of the freedom of the press enabled discussion. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the letters after uh, January 30, 1933, when Hitler was appointed chancellor, the tone of the letter cha letters change. And mm -hmm. she starts using a kind of code. Uh, it's very clear because she's aware that Nazi censors may be reading her letters. And, and when you're in a fascist dictatorship, this is indeed what happens. And and so she's much more careful about her po expressing her political opinions. And she even says, if anybody asks you, uh, mother, what Arvid and I are doing, that's her husband, Arvid, um, you know, say that we're not politically involved, just say that we're two graduate students mm -hmm. interested in ideas. So, I mean, one of the really potent things about the book is how we are able to sort of move through this time period and the years afterwards up to 1943 with Mildred and to get a sense because the book is written novelistically in many ways and it's in the present yeah. tense and we'll yes, get in into some tense. of your choices sure. therein. It both feels archival and propulsive in a sense and, in, and inevitable. 
Well, I did want to bring that sense of immediacy for re- for readers, you know, to feel that they're they're on the streets of Berlin with Mildred, bearing witness um, to what was going on, and and uh, just another interesting uh, statistic from this time: just two months later, after Hitler was appointed chancellor in March 1933, there were approximately 20,000 political prisoners, and by the end of the year, over 200,000 communist, social democrats, and trade unionists had been sent off to concentration camp. And so, you know, Hitler targeted political opponents first, and Mildred was a political opponent. Arvid was a political opponent. The people in their group, which Mildred nicknamed the circle, were political opponents. And beginning in, in 1933, they were acutely aware that they were risking their lives by opposing the Nazi regime. Mm-hmm. It also poses a challenge as a writer because it, in terms of documentation. So I was also aware, mm-hmm. I, yes, I wrote the book in the present tense to bring that sense of immediacy and also um, relevance to readers. This is relevant mm-hmm. today for reasons that um, I'm happy to elaborate on, but should be abundantly clear if anybody reads newspapers. But I also you know, wanted to exhaustively research the archives. And it's important to understand, you know, Mildred Burns her diary uh, right shortly before she was um, arrested by the Gestapo. Mm-hmm. She wrote those letters to her mother, but she started to, to censor herself in a way. She participated in her own self-erasure. I mean, this was out of a sense of survival. So that poses a challenge for the writer who is trying to, you know, I was trying to excavate all of this and with the understanding that, uh, that that Nazis burned a lot of records. They burned um, the court records uh, mm-hmm. of the of the mass treason trial that Mildred participated in. Um, my own great grandmother, Mildred's um, older sister, who I mentioned earlier, burned a lot of Mildred's letters and, and ordered the family to do so because, she, again, as I mentioned, she was worried about her own safety in a Cold War uh, United States. Uh, and and so with that understanding, I had to look at this time period and uh, in a kind of kaleidoscopic view and and take in f- multiple sources to tell the story. Yeah, that's that's when you asked me earlier about how did the story evolve for me or my understanding. This is how it did. You know, I, I could only go so far with the letters, um, even though my great grandmother urged everybody to burn the letters after she died. The letters did show up in her attic. My grandmother discovered mm-hmm. them. And, and so she had no idea when she ordered the family to burn the letters when Harriet ordered this my great-grandmother, that her own mother had stashed those letters in the attic. If that hadn't happened, it would be so much harder to tell this story. Thank goodness. So so that that just gives you a sort of a flavor of the kinds of challenges that that I then had to artistically manage in some way. And, and I decided to do it in this sort of innovative way. There's a moment about 1935, I think, because in the beginning, it's mostly the printing and, and distribution, secret distribution of leaflets against the, against the Nazi government. Yes. But then in about 1935, Arvid and Mildred come to a, a realization about what needs to be done. And yes. from that point on, there, there's a their lives really change. And I wonder if you could describe that and how it is, what roles they have to take on. Well, that was a critical year, you know, in 1935. The first few years, they actually believed that that their resistance would 
would have an effect and that Germans would reject Hitler. Uh, you know, they regarded him as a buffoon, um, and, and, as and even the international press underestimated him. Um, sounds and familiar, doesn't it? Sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. Members of the, of the conservative party all thought that they could control him. And uh, there's a chapter in my book where I describe a very sort of a, a pivotal moment um, his first big uh, meeting with with uh, his uh, members of the ministry. And that's really when it became clear that they could not control him. But Germany was already on its swift descent um, to fascist dictatorship. But uh, in 1935, Mildred and Arvid and others in the group realized that paper was a poor weapon against the Nazi regime and that they needed and easily ex- exposed them to arrest. So the best way to defeat the Nazi regime, they decided, was to form a resistance network that extended across Germany's borders. And so mm-hmm. they must make contact with other countries. And at the same time, they wanted to undermine the Nazi regime from within. So Arvid got a job at the Ministry of Economics, posing as a loyal Nazi. Um, this gave him access to classified documents about Hitler's operational and later military strategies. And and Mildred got a job as a literary scout for a publishing company. And this was mm-hmm. her cover. Um, And with her American passport, which was very valuable, she was able to travel to these other countries and and form contacts. Mm -hmm. And we do know that in 1937, Mildred went back to the United States Mm -hmm. to... um, to see her family for the first time in in almost a decade. So interviews with them, uh, post-war testimonials, uh, my own grandmother's recollections, which she shared with me, Mm -hmm. show us, you know, uh, what she was thinking and feeling, um, at least what, how people were perceiving her. I should, I should clarify that. They just, the old Mildred was gone. There was a brittleness to her and she seemed rather paranoid and Mm -hmm. Her brother thought that she had gone crazy when she told him that she was worried she might be followed. Uh, and a friend of hers threw a big party for her. And and men and women at that party later said that they thought that she had gone Nazi. Uh, mm-hmm. And and her own family thought that she had gone Nazi. That's how, that was the only way they could describe that she, how sort of brittle she was. They had no appreciation for this double life that she was leading or what really the emotional effects are from being in the resistance, from living in a fascist dictatorship. And she couldn't tell any of them about any of it. So it was really only the two of them that could confide in each other. And he he worked these extraordinary long hours right in the center of Nazi power. Oh, and and he detested Nazis, you know. And so this was just... And yet he, this was the only way that he felt that the Nazi regime could be undermined is, is going right into the center, into the belly of the beast. And there he begins to gather information that is truly tangible information about what the Nazis are doing. It's economic information, and it's, it's through the Department of Treasury in, in America that there becomes a hunger for this information. And, and so the spying begins with Arvid and with Mildred, and Mildred has to have a way of passing on this information to the, the Treasury Department. Uh, you mentioned this young boy, Don, Don, Don Heath, Heath Jr. Because yes. he, he actually plays this uh, a sort of secondary starring role in this extraordinary drama. Yes. And uh, tell, me, tell us about him and how he came into this story. Uh, yes, um, happily so. So Don Heath, uh, and, and I mentioned earlier that my grandmother had mentioned his name um, to me. Uh, and then when I um, embarked on uh, writing this book in earnest, I thought, oh, 
I think I've waited too long. You know, I, I don't know if he's still alive, but um, in fact, he was. And I tracked him down in California when he was 89. And I sat down with him for extensive interviews um, that were so deeply meaningful to me. I mean, he greeted me like I was a family member. He said he used to call Mildred Aunt Mildred. <laughs> and, and he talked about how twice a week between 1939 and 1941, between the ages of 11 and 13, he visited Mildred's apartment ostensibly for tutoring sessions in American and English literature. Um, and Mildred did indeed tutor him. But at the end of the session, she would slip a note into his knapsack, which then he would pass on to his father, Donald Heath Sr., who was a diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, who mm -hmm. had a confidential arrangement with Secretary of Treasury Henry Morgenthau Jr., Assistant Secretary of State George Messersmith, and Under Secretary of State Sumner Wells to obtain intelligence from key sources in Berlin. And so basically the Heath family and the Harnocks were were collaborating. And this was after mm -hmm. Hitler, um, after Germany invaded Poland. And um, th this was another sort of strategic move uh, that they made to then pass this information to the Americans, uh, to Hitler's enemies, in the hope that they could uh, defeat Germany, and which is, of course, a, uh, an act of high treason. And they were aware of that as well. That carries a death sentence. It must have meant so much to him to finally be speaking about oh, all this to you. Tears were, you know, tears were in his eyes through most of the. Uh, I'm even tearing up now remembering it um, throughout throughout most of the interviews. And at the end of the interview, he said, "Rebecca, now I can die." And, um, and you know, and he did uh, a month later. Mm. So I, I was, I was, I, I yeah. was so, um, I wanted so much for him to read this book, you know, and, and that's why his yeah. wife is alive. And she fortunately um, has been able to read the book because in many ways, this book is also a tribute to him and to others in the resistance whose stories have not been told. This is this extraordinarily brave little American boy. And mm -hmm. after about two months after he died, his family got in touch with me again and said, Rebecca, would you be interested in coming here? Again, uh, we have 12 steamer trunks of documents. Uh, do you want to go through them? Oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about gold again. Yeah, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is right? most so. assuredly yes. I jumped <laughs> on the plane. I flew. I was in New York then. I flew to California. And it's interesting because, of course, I was asking myself the question when I was interviewing him, how much is exaggerated. You know, how much had he embellished in his memory? And, you know, I think it's important as a biographer uh, to know your sources and to to understand where the information is coming from and the potential biases and so forth. So, you know, I was, of course, alert to this. But what was so extraordinary about these 12 steamer trunks of documents um, was that they corroborated you know, so much of what he told me. And and during this interview, yeah, I, he, he, he mentioned that when he was talking about Mamselle, the cook, uh, at one point he told me this little story about how they thought that she was a spy for the Gestapo. And he, and once uh, her his mother saw, walked in on her taking photographs of her diary. And, oh and, I, and I said, well, Don, where is that diary? Um, and oh. he said, oh, lost in the war. I, I don't you know. And wouldn't you know it, it was in one of those it was in the trunks. Trunk. Yes. It was, I almost wow. fell to the ground and, you know, he didn't even yep. know, he didn't even know that, 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 mm -hmm. that the diaries had been saved. So um, anyway, these, that the diaries and her date books and also um, uh, other uh, primary source documentation, um, it, they're in the process of being archived at the Hoover mm -hmm. Institution. So, Fantastic. Yeah. 
So I mentioned the word inevitable yes. uh, earlier. And so that, you know, even as we're talking, we can feel the weight of what's coming. Right. Right. As, the, as they get further and further into this and the war is now fully going and, you know, they're actively spying and they are finally arrested. And right. it's, it's in 1942, um, the know, fall it, of 1942. Right. Yeah. The Gestapo. Through their connection with the Soviets. That's right. Right. And, um, and so then the way you handle their imprisonment and which is, of course, they're separated from each other, their interrogations, their torture and the general atmosphere in the prison and how they were treated and, mm-hmm. and what went on there is is really uh, beautifully handled and very moving. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you really build out the picture. And I think it allows you and us to experience the physicality of all of it, yes. including the guillotine, which you also write about. I also but write the, the history that, of the guillotine. Yep. The part that can only yeah. be done yeah. um, through imaginative writing is for you to give us a sense of of who she was, what what person is in there. And there's one of the most affecting moments in the book, and this will lead us to our close, yeah. is a letter from Arvid yeah. to her that somehow survives time, history, oh, yeah. and fate. And would you just tell us a little bit about that and what it told you about their relationship? Oh, certainly. Before Arvid was was executed as well. Oh, John, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that that is that is um, that letter, and it's it's quite miraculous that it survived, and it survived because of Mildred's cellmate. She was given a cell, cellmate named Gertrude Claputh, and um, after solitary confinement, she was given this uh, cellmate because there were concerns by the prison p- personnel that Mildred would try to commit suicide. Um, this sometimes this was after Arvid had been sentenced to death and Mildred at that time had been sentenced to six years in prison. So there was Mm -hmm. a moment when she thought she would survive before Hitler um, sort of overruled that decision and ordered her a second trial, which was just, um, um, just for show, you know, and, and, and Mm -hmm. she was sentenced to death, but Gertrude saw Mildred, uh, read this letter. And so Arvid, right before he was executed, he wrote a farewell letter to Mildred. And when you mentioned that this book is part love story, this is one of the ways in mm-hmm. which we see that, that the letter is a love letter. It's also a, a, a letter that is a document that that speaks so much to his belief in the resistance um, and his belief in their love and and how they can change the world um, with that love mm-hmm. and, and and that he has no regrets. I mean, here he is. He's just about to be hanged by meat hooks um, with horrendous uh, execution um, and uh, along with member, his co-conspirators. And and he writes this letter that is that is so uh, um, th- that brings tears to my eyes, even, you know, it's how very many tender. very tender. Yeah. Um, and um, and so uh Gertrude, Mildred's cellmate, watched Mildred read this letter countless times. And and then right before um, Gertrude was transferred, Mildred gave her the letter and said, please 
keep this letter safe and give it back to this family if you survive. Give it back to, his, to Arvid's mother. And so Gertrude was transferred to Ravensbrück concentration camp. She mm-hmm. survived. And then uh, in 1952, she tracked down Arvid's mother and wrote her two Amazing. letters. And in these letters, she described a month in a cell with Mildred. And this is another way that I knew how Mildred's life was in prison, because those letters are so detailed um, about, you know, they would sing songs to each other and, and write poetry. Uh, and, um, and Mildred um, would tell her stories about, um, about her growing up in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and Milwaukee and, and, and also about Arvid. And so there was a rich detail in the, in, that I was able to uh, use to, um, to describe Mildred. And then, and, and, and then, you know, the letter itself, itself, which maybe I'll just read a line or two just yeah, to give you a it's sense. Beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. and before I do that, I just want to mention one other thing, which is that, when Mildred, you know, the last moments of her life, um, she was translating Goethe poetry. Um, somebody had smuggled in a book of Goethe poems, uh, and the prison chaplain, Harald Pulschau, who was secretly in the resistance, came into her cell and saw her bent over this book, uh, scribbling English translations in the margins. This is what she was doing right before she was beheaded. Um, and later, um, uh, Harold Pulschau smuggled that book out. And for that reason, we have that book today. It's in a German archive. And a line from one of these Goethe poems, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, is yeah. the title of my book. So um, it's a wonderful line, wonderful title. Yeah, they, yeah. And, you know, it speaks to our troubles as well as mm-hmm. the troubles of her Certainly. days. So, but Arvid's letter, it's two pages long, so I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just, I'll just read a couple sentences and, and maybe we could end right. on this it would note. Be a great, it's a perfect way to end, exactly. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. So uh, here we go. My dear, beloved heart, if in the last months I found the strength to be inwardly calm and composed... It is because I feel a strong attachment to all that is good and beautiful in this world, a feeling that sings out of the poet Whitman. Those who are close to me embody this feeling, especially you. Despite the pain, I looked back gladly on my life. The bright outshone the dark, and our marriage is to the greatest degree the reason for this. Last night, I let many of the wonderful moments of our marriage go through my head, and the more I thought about them, the more memories came. It was as if I looked at a starry sky in which the numbers of stars increase the more meticulously one looks. Here I am reading more than two sentences. Um, I'm going to skip ahead (laughs) to the end. You are in my heart. You shall be in there forever. My greatest wish is that you are happy when you think of me. I am when I think of you. Many, many kisses. Hugging you tight. Your A. Mm. Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing that for the book, um, which I can't recommend it highly enough. And you're coming to Sun Valley to the Writers' Conference this summer. I'm looking forward to uh, it. And we are, we are really excited and <laughs> it will be a chance for uh, all the people there to hear you. And Wonderful. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. It's been a, it's a very thought-provoking as well as moving story that makes, makes us all really ponder the question of our own consciousness yes. is, you know, our, our, our behaviors, our actions in the world and what's happening around us. Yes, indeed. Uh, and it's really important really important book in that sense. And, oh, thank you, and it's John. it's just a wonderful, wonderful to read. We do have a- So a congratulations. Cur- thank you. We have an urgent yeah. need for stories about resistance, definitely. We do. And I look forward to visiting um, this summer. It'll be great. Thanks so much. Thank Take you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday.